Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are with us now. Help us to hear your voice, speak through my words, and may your spirit lead us into new life. Amen. In 2003, Bethany Hamilton was a child prodigy surfer. At just 13, she was tipped for great things as a professional. That was until she was attacked by a 15-foot tiger shark and lost her left arm. The situation seemed utterly hopeless. What chance would anyone in that field have after that? But Bethany wasn't to be swayed from her commitment. After a series of operations, she began to surf with only one arm and a customised board. And within a few months of the shark attack, she was back competing. And she did go on to have a hugely successful career. And last year, before COVID struck, she was attempting to make a comeback on the professional tour after a few years away in which she'd had a couple of children. And she was attempting that comeback despite having just recovered from breaking her remaining elbow skateboarding. It's no wonder the film which tells her story is called Unstoppable. Her story is truly inspirational. But Bethany doesn't just put it down to her own special character traits. Her faith in God has played an important part in that journey. God had given her that passion for surfing and it hadn't gone with her left arm. In an interview with The Guardian last year, she said, I had a sense of peace after the attack. Faith helped me through. Adult me is like, whoa, how did I do that? It was childlike faith. The front page of her website says, I know life can be hard. But I've learned that we can rise above the biggest challenges and fears. No matter where you've come from or what you're facing, you are loved by God and you can overcome. I seriously encourage you to check out her website. There is some amazing stuff there. But I came across Bethany's story whilst doing a Google search for Hope in hopeless situations. And when you do a search like that, there's lots of motivational self-help self -help stuff out there. For example, one article quotes that a note that a legendary basketball coach, John Wooden, was given by his father, Joshua. It says, the secret of turning a seemingly hopeless situation into a triumph is simple. Don't whine. Don't complain. Don't make excuses. Just do the best you can. Nobody can do more than that. But if you dig a little more deeply into his story, you find that has a faith root too. For a couple of other bits of advice from that letter were pray for guidance. Give thanks for blessings. 
and drink deeply from good books, especially the Bible. A while back, a friend complained to me about attending a church service at which she said the sermon was little more than pop psychology wrapped up in a couple of Bible verses. That, she said, will protect no one when the storms come. And I must admit, whilst I do kind of agree with her, yeah, it, I was a little wary. I, I could be fascinated by neuroscience, psychology and the like. I was worried that she might have been talking about one of my sermons. But... And I will sometimes share some of that with you. And hopefully where it connects with faith, following Jesus and so on. The well-being journey course that we're doing at the moment is part of that. And those who were there last Wednesday will know we were looking at the subject of our mindset and how it affects all of life. And I love the description of science by Johann Kepler as thinking God's thoughts after him. I love to relate my faith to life and the wider world. Christianity is an incarnational, physical, material faith. The way God chooses to interact with the world is for the word to become flesh. And I believe that God is in and is interested in all of life. But equally, I'm aware that when you think about a subject like finding hope in a hopeless situation, and when, and when you start with an example like I used, it can easily slide down the road of the power of positive thinking. And I hope that I am clear that our real hope is not to be found there but in the good news and transforming power of what God has done in Jesus Christ. In recent years, I've grown in my appreciation of the opening lines of what has become known as the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. But a key part of this growing back better that I've been talking about over these last few weeks is about where we find our hope when we are powerless to deliver ourselves. And both Bethany Hamilton and John Wooden, inspirational as they are, and undoubtedly they were, they find that as we drink deeply from the scriptures, as we come to realize that we are held in the unstoppable love of God from which nothing can separate us. That provides the basis for true hope. Not in ourselves or in what we can achieve, but in the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. If ever there was a story of the possibility of hope in a hopeless situation, it was a story we turned to in John's Gospel this morning. John goes to great lengths to show how far gone Lazarus' situation really was. As we picked up the story of verse 17, we're told that when Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. 
Later, when Jesus asks him to remove the stone from his tomb, Martha protests and says, there's going to be a bad smell, Lord. He's been buried for four days. What's so important about those four days? The point John is making is that this is a situation which has gone beyond hope. Lazarus is dead, dead. There are a couple of ideas which might be alluded to in the story. One was a belief held by some Jews that after death, the spirit hung around the body for a few days, hoping to re-enter it. However, after a few days, normally around day four, the face would change colour, a sign that decomposition had begun and the spirit would depart. And it was also around that stage that the tomb would be permanently sealed. You might remember from the Easter story how on Friday Jesus' body is taken from the cross and laid in the tomb. But early Sunday morning, some women go to that same tomb to complete the burial rites. And yes, there is a seal on that tomb door too. But they were still somehow hoping to access the body of their master. But around day three or four, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, the tomb would have been sealed up. So John wants us to really get a sense of just how far gone the situation is. That any cause for hope is gone. The name Lazarus might mean God's helps me. But this Lazarus was beyond help. But there are a couple of things about the God revealed in Jesus that we discover in this story. One is that God is not remote from us in our suffering. It might be the shortest verse in the Bible, but it would have been one of the most shocking. Jesus wept. You know, it's odd that although of all the Gospels, John is obviously the most aware of Jesus' divinity. He also seems to be the most aware of Jesus' humanity. For example, in John 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, John tells us that they reached Samaria and Jesus sat down because he was tired out by the journey and he was in need of a drink. He was tired. He was thirsty. How human's that? Well, here, even aware of what he's about to see, we see powerful emotional life in Jesus. Some of the depictions we see of Jesus on film or whatever, they have him sort of seemingly quite otherworldly, serenity personified, gazing off into the middle distance. Not here. He's not calm, serene, detached, unmoved by the sorrow and suffering around him. He's quite powerfully moved. He's described as shaken, shuddering with emotion, deeply moved. Not surprisingly, perhaps, in a passage about death and a funeral, the English word weeping crops up a few times. But the word for when Jesus weeps is different from all the other words used in, in the story. It suggests a real depth to the sorrow in the tears Jesus sheds. Jesus validates and affirms the sorrow we feel when loss comes into our lives. Jesus, more than anyone, is aware of the hope we have in the love of God. But even he sheds tears. We can find our hope in the love of God.
but never lose sight of the fact that hopeful grief is still grief and it's still painful. It matters. Death is not, as the poem often shared at funerals often suggests, nothing at all. It matters. And Jesus shows us that this is true. Jesus weeps. Jesus feels the sorrow. But he's still Lord of it. And the other thing Jesus reveals is God's utter determination to bring new life out of this hopeless situation. At every point, Jesus meets resistance to what he wants to do. When Jesus is told of Lazarus' illness, although he doesn't go immediately, his disciples, his disciples would rather he not go at all. Last time he'd gone over that way, some of the leaders wanted him dead. And the disciple Thomas gets the last word in before they set off for Bethany. Oh well, let's go to the with the, let's all go with the teacher and die with him. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, he meets disappointment first from Martha, then Mary. Where were you? If you'd been here, we wouldn't be in this mess. Lazarus would still be around. And that disappointment is shared by at least some of the crowd. As Jesus weeps, some of them know, oh, look how much Jesus loved them. But others say, could he not have done something about it when he had the chance? And then when Jesus tells him to roll back the stone, he meets resistance once more. We can't do that, it'll stink. At every turn, Jesus meets resistance. But at every turn, he persists determined to bring you life. You know what? Jesus longing to bring new life to us is way greater than ours is to receive it. So what are the hopeless things we carry around with? Perhaps things we've prayed for, but maybe long since given up on. Things that seem so far gone, we don't even really think of God helping them. Oh yeah, we might know that God cares about it and that God cares about us. We might even draw strength and comfort from that. But we can also reach the stage where we think, if God were going to do something about it, Surely he'll have done it by now. I'll be up front with you. If you ask me why he doesn't appear to have done anything by now, my answer will be, I don't know. And there may be things that aren't resolved in this life. I mean, who knows how many others were buried in that Bethany graveyard. But only Lazarus walks out of the tent. But the story still reminds us that even when we think all hope is gone, Jesus may not think that. That what it means that's what it means for him to be the resurrection and the life. But Jesus won't force hope on us. He patiently works with us and in and even through our resistance. There's something we can learn from each of the four things Jesus says. 
Where have you laid him, asked Jesus. Come and see, they replied. What are the no-go areas of our lives? What parts would we rather not explore? Certainly not with others, but maybe even with God. Are we prepared to let Jesus go with us to those places of sorrow, hurt, fear, disappointment? Because those are the very places that the Spirit longs to bring light and life and resurrection. But will he get access? Will we take him there? Roll away the stone, said Jesus. Even if we are prepared to go there, will we open up to him? I suspect Martha thought Jesus just wanted one last look at his old friend. Maybe there was a sense of she thought she was doing Jesus a favour. Jesus, you really don't want to remember him as he is now. You want to remember him as he was. And besides, Jesus, it stinks in there. It can take courage to roll back the stone with anyone. Are we prepared? Are they prepared for what they might find there? Shame can be one of our biggest barriers. That sense of, if, if they just saw what was behind there, they might think differently of you, might think less of you. It mocks us and tells us somehow we're not worthy. And we can even act that way with God. We can seek to put on a front or a face with God every bit as much as with anyone else. And it's true that not everyone will be worthy of the trust that's required for us to roll back the stone. But the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ is. That God knows us completely. God loves us completely. In Christ, God has shown that love by giving himself for each one of us. He hasn't come to condemn us. In him there is only grace and mercy beyond our wildest dreams. His longing to give new life far surpasses our longing to receive it. His love is greater than whatever we bring to him. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. For Lazarus to embrace the offer of new life, he has to step out of the tomb. And it might seem obvious that we'll want the new life Jesus came to bring us. But it's not. We can grow used to how things are. We can lose the will to, for things to be different. It was there in the Bethany Hamilton story. The adult Bethany with a whoa, how can we do that? Stepping into the new life called for childlike faith. When I was about 10, I was knocked down by a car. Not quite sure why, but the next day I had to have some dental work done. And I sat in a hospital dentist chair, oh, for a good two, two and a half hours having work done. 
As he finished the work, I still remember the dentist saying to me, you did very well. You were very brave. A lot of adults wouldn't have let me do that to them. And I must admit, my first thought was, if I'd known I had the choice, I wouldn't have let you do it either. But in life, we can become not only jaded in the hope of newness of life, or even the expectation of it, but also in the will. What we have now, it's what we know. Change is risky. Can we trust that God can bring us into that new life? Finally, Jesus says, unbind him and set him free. Lazarus' resurrection isn't like Jesus' resurrection. In John 20, we'll read of the grave clothes being left where they were, with the face covered, neatly covered over by itself. Lazarus emerges still with the grave clothes and the face covering. He steps into a new life, but he's still bound up with all the trappings of the old one. It takes others to help get him free. But interestingly, the word for unbind has the same root as new bath. We're not called to travel alone, but to do it together. We're to help one another embrace the new life, encourage one another, strengthen one another, not spend our time taking people back to how they were. Together, we're called to embody the grace and forgiveness that God longs to bring us as he offers new life. In Jesus, there is hope. Even when we struggle to see it or find it. We might think we're too far gone. We might have given up the hope that anything can change. We might even erect stumbling blocks along the road. But God is not remote from us, is he? God affirms our sorrow, our sense of loss. But he still declares Jesus as Lord over us. And God longs for us to embrace and experience his new life even more than we want it. So may we find ourselves able to take him to those places where we most need new life, light and resurrection. May we find the grace to open ourselves up to him. May we find the grace when new life is offered to step into it. And may we be people of grace, walking together, caring for one another, embodying the love in which God longs to enfold us. Grace and peace to you.